All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament or the New Testament book of Acts. We'll begin there, New Testament book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7. And uh, we'll be looking at the life of Stephen. Stephen was the first person in the church who was martyred for his faith. The church is very young. We're only in the sixth chapter of Acts when we meet up with Stephen. And we pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 1 and following. But Father, we pray for your blessing. Open our hearts. Give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Now in those days... Yes. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. I wish, uh, I, wish I could say that um, in our lives we could get up and we could go to work and we never had to deal with problems. I wish we could say that we could live in a community and neighbors would never have issues with each other. I wish we could say that we could live somewhere and be involved in something where there is no conflict, but unfortunately that is never going to be the case, and it is never going to be the case in the church as well. Here is a great example of the fact that no church is perfect. Uh, this is pretty classic. No nation is perfect. We talked on Wednesday night about, uh, about our nation and how we were founded by uh, leaders who loved the Lord and, and gave us Christian principles to build a nation on. And then we wondered why we had to deal with social evils. Why wouldn't, couldn't we have been the perfect nation? Well, no nation ever is. And no church ever is. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now let me explain myself here. Anytime you look at God's Word, it is wise for you to ask six questions so you can get the most out of what you're reading. You need to look at the situation and ask yourself, is this situation a problem for me to endure, to handle, to deal with? Or is it a blessing for me to embrace? There are just some passages of Scripture where all you need to do is just bask in the blessing. And then you need to ask yourself these questions in addition. Is there a sin for me to avoid or an attitude to change? Is there a command for me to obey or an example to follow? Is there a truth for me to believe or a promise to claim? I would ask all of those questions, and by the time you ask those questions, whenever you read a passage of Scripture, you are ready for some application. But let me say this to you. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, or any other passage of Scripture for that matter... What you get out of that passage is going to depend upon who you choose to identify with 
in the passage of Scripture. Let me give you an example here. You could choose to identify with the number of disciples that were multiplying in the church. The word disciple here is being applied to all of the church members. Everybody who is following Christ is considered to be a disciple. Or you could choose to be among the Hebrew-speaking Christians in the church. Hebrews doesn't refer to them as Jews who remain Jews. They're Jewish Christians now who speak Hebrew. They live in the Holy Land. They live in Judea. And they grew up with the Aramaic language, which is really, uh, really basically a, a, a Hebrew, Hebrew dialect. Or you could choose to be the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Christians. You see, the church has Jewish-speaking Christians in it and Greek-speaking Christians in it. And you can imagine the differences that would develop between the Hebrew-speaking Christians and the Greek-speaking Christians. You can imagine the differences because the Hebrew-speaking Christians grew up in that land. They went to the synagogue on a regular basis where the Greek-speaking Christians grew up probably in other lands for the most part and either moved to Judea or were coming on a constant uh, basis to, go, to attend the festivals and things like that. And you can imagine that the Hebrews are maintaining the Hebrew culture and the Greek-speaking Christians are maintaining the Greek culture and they're pretty much diametrically opposed to one another. So you could choose to be them. We could go through this passage of Scripture and we could add uh, fellow Jews from the synagogue where you used to attend when you were Jewish in your belief and you weren't yet Christian. We could refer to the religious leaders and the council members. We could even refer to Stephen and the Apostle Paul who was called Saul in this chapter. But I'm suggesting this morning that you and I choose to identify with the number of the disciples that was multiplying. That you and I choose to identify with the regular members of the church, whether you are Hebrew-speaking or Greek-speaking. The problem developed. The aid that was to go to widows in the church who had no way of making a living who had no way of taking care of themselves, getting money to live on, the Bible tells us that the Hellenistic ones were being neglected. The Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. And so it's now the responsibility of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, to figure out what to do. They've been overwhelmed with this problem because in addition to their prayer and in addition to their uh, ministry of the word, they were dealing with these physical needs in the congregation. And so in verse 2, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, that's the congregation, and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Our efforts would be best served if we could spend our time ministering the word. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, 
full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And guess what? The whole congregation looked at this. The whole congregation thought it was a great idea. In verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and they chose Philip, and they chose five other guys. Now, I just want to bring this to your attention because these obviously are Greek-speaking Jewish believers. They all got Greek names. All right? So we can, we can assume that, except the last person who was a convert from Judaism in the city of Antioch and now became a Christian and is serving the church in Jerusalem. He would be the exception. And all I just want you to think about is to think about how the 12 disciples decide they're going to solve this problem. If the Greek-speaking Hellenists are the ones that are being neglected, then we're going to put them on a committee, the Greek-speaking men on a committee to solve the problem for them. And the Bible says that they set before the apostles these men and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples, that would be us, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I sometimes wonder why Luke even bothered to put that in there. But there are thousands of priests in Judea, and the Bible tells us that they're coming to know the Lord, and they're and they're, in, in, and they're bringing their Jewish background, obviously, into their religion. This is a Jewish church at this point. And the Bible tells us that they are coming to know Christ as Savior. So, in chapter 6, verse 7, and let me just say this to you. Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1 that they were to... Share the gospel in Jerusalem first, in Samaria, in, in all Judea, and then in Samaria, second, and then to the end of the earth. And this is pretty much, much the climax of sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. They're ready to move on in Judea. They're ready to move on to Samaria and the end of the world. But the church is growing. It's growing by leaps and bounds. And so a second problem develops in the church. In verse 8, the Bible says, Stephen, who was mentioned first in that list of men, Stephen, who was full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. I mean, this guy was working miracles. And the Bible tells us that he was highly qualified for what he was doing, and the job of deacons was not just to deal with the physical needs of the congregation, but also to deal with spiritual needs as well. And the Bible says that because he was of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of faith is mentioned the second time, and full of power is implied, he was really serving the Lord in a fantastic way. 
That's one reason why I didn't suggest we identify with Stephen this morning. We would look at him as the pastor of the super church of Jerusalem. We would look at him and look up to him and say, boy, I'd love to be like Stephen. But I don't know. Many times the word full is used in this passage of Scripture. And when the word full is used, if my faith is full, it means that I am being controlled by my faith. If I am full of the Holy Spirit, it means that the Holy Spirit is controlling me. And Stephen was one of those guys where he was completely given over to God and God's will for his life. And everything he did, he did because he was motivated by the Holy Spirit and by his faith. Now, it's tragic by our way of thinking as to what happens next. The Bible tells us that in verse 9, that then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the free men. I, I, I can assume, and it's probably true, that this is the synagogue that Stephen probably attended as a Greek-speaking Jew. And the reason why I can, come to, I can tentatively make that conclusion is because all through Jerusalem there were synagogues. And many of those, some of those synagogues had to be for all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of visitors that would come three times a year to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at those special feasts. The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And here's a synagogue that was built in the city of Jerusalem, especially for Greek-speaking Jews. And I say that to you because the people who attended were Cyrenians. That's not a Jewish country. They were from Alexandria. That's not a Jewish country. That's the third largest, the second largest city of the Roman Empire, by the way, in Egypt. And it was filled with Greek-speaking Jews. And Cilicia is in Asia Minor, and it's a province of the Roman government. And the capital of that province was the city of Tarsus, where Paul was from. And so I suggest to you that not only was this possibly Stephen's Jewish synagogue before he became a Christian... But it may have been Paul's as well. And if it was Paul's, then I'm imagining now that since Stephen is saved, Paul is not yet saved, that Paul may be a part of the problem in verse 9. The synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia disputed with Stephen. Picking fights with him. But they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. They couldn't win their arguments. They couldn't get to first base. Stephen outmaneuvered them in his thinking and in his presentation every single time. And so they had to do what a lot of people do. They had to resort to an underhanded way of dealing with Stephen. 
This kind of reminds me of Daniel in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 6 when the, some of the political leaders wanted to get rid of Daniel and they got together and they says, how are we going to do it? And they said, well, let's try and do it this way and that way and this way and that way. And they finally all came to the conclusion that Daniel is so well behaved in what he does and what he says is so right that the only way we're going to get Daniel out of office is to do something underhanded. Daniel was a statesman for the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire back in those days. And so in verse 11, the Bible says that they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, there are four verbs here, and I want you to catch these verbs here. They, they, they disputed with Stephen to start with. Then they secretly went around and got a few people to accuse him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses, dare never do that, and certainly dare never talk against the temple of God, his dwelling place on earth. And number three, not only after disputing with Stephen, secretly inducing men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the Sanhedrin, which is the government council of the Jewish people under the Roman Empire. And if that's not enough, if they're causing this disturbance, disputing and secretly inducing men to make these false accusations and stirring up the people and the religious leaders, the Bible says when they get him into the council, look what they do next. They also set up false witnesses who said, look at this, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. But God was even with Stephen. And God wanted them to have a different impression from what they were doing. And the Bible says that everybody who sat in that council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. His disposition was cool, calm, collected. It's kind of like Moses back in the Old Testament when Moses' face shone when he came off of the mountain. I'm sure that's what they were thinking about. Here we're saying he's accusing Moses of all of this, and now he's looking a lot like Moses. He's looking a lot like Moses. And the high priest said to Stephen in chapter 7, Are these things true? This may have been Caiaphas, the very one who interrogated Jesus. The high priest said, are these things so? You know, the very same things that they did to Stephen, they did to Jesus. You know that? Remember that. Remember back in Matthew chapter 26, you'll remember that they did the same thing to Jesus. They had false witnesses. Those false witnesses couldn't agree when they wanted to condemn Jesus and put him to death. They had it in their mind and they were going to do everything they possibly could to do what they had planned to do. And in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and following, you have the awful, awful, awful account of how they tried to railroad Jesus 
into destroying himself by falsely accusing him of his words and his deeds. Set him up. And they're trying to set up Stephen as well. Well, you can imagine Stephen was a threat to them. He was Jewish and now he's a Christian. And maybe the very synagogue where he attended and still may be attended. Has to destroy him. And so when the high priest said to Stephen, is this stuff true? Stephen defends himself. Now, we don't have time to go into Stephen's defense. We'll make a couple of quick observations as we close this out. But I want you to note that Stephen makes a defense by going into the history of the Jewish people. And it's a fascinating history. Let me suggest that if you were to come up with a plan on how he handles this, he goes back to Moses. He goes back, he spends most of his time on Moses. There's the, you know, Moses' name comes up in a lot of these false accusations. He goes back to Moses. He accurately gives the history of Moses for the first 40 years of Moses' life when he was living in Egypt. Then he gives the history of Moses in the next 40 years of his life when he is living in Midian, gets married and has kids. And then he is giving the history of Moses in the last 40 years when he meets God at the burning bush and God tells him to go and help uh, free the Israelite people from their bondage in Egypt. And he leads them for 40 years through the wilderness. It's an accurate picture. And his defense is that. But then in his defense, and I want you to see this. In his defense, he has to say to the religious leaders, he said, listen. This has all been a part of God's plan and purpose for all of us. But the problem with you is this. That you, in verse 51, after he gives his defense, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, I don't think that that really, really... Um, made them like him any better than they already did. And I suppose by telling them that you guys have received the law and look what you're doing. The Bible says the reaction in verse 54 is that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their feet, with their teeth. They cried out with a loud voice in 57, stopped their ears and ran him ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him to death, where they put the clothes and their, their, their outer uh, coats and stuff uh, at the feet of Saul, who is the Apostle Paul later when his name is changed. And verse 59 merely says they stoned Stephen. And you and I know that Stephen looked into heaven, he called on the Father, and he looked into heaven, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the Bible says that he saw, when he looked into heaven, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And the thing I love about this passage of Scripture more than anything else is the fact that he is the first martyr. And the Bible says that Jesus went to heaven 20-some times. The Bible tells us that after his ascension, 
After his resurrection, his ascension, he went to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And here is Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but the only time we read in Scripture that he stands, no doubt in honor of Stephen. I love that. I love that. That's a blessing to embrace in the midst of the problems that they were to endure. Now, there's something I have to say, and I'm going to do this as quickly as I possibly can. But I have to do this because I think it's very, very important in our day and age to deal with God's Word and the apparent contradictions that we have. And I'm, this may seem like a sidelight, but it is really not. When he is defending himself, when Stephen is defending himself, and he gives an accurate picture of the history of the children of Israel, you'll remember, you'll see that in chapter 7... Verse 14 and following, when he gets to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, in verse 14 he makes this comment that Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and he and our fathers. And they carried him back to Shechem and laid in the tomb uh, in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. And I say all that, and you look at that and say, oh, this is, this is just not so in the middle of this sermon this morning. But I, it is, it is, it is to a degree. Because let me, if you were, if you were Stephen, and you were debating, and you were disputing the reliability of the history of Israel in the synagogue... And you came to this passage of Scripture that says that Joseph and all of his relatives were 75 in number. That would run you out of town for your inaccuracy. They would have said, ah, this is a perfect opportunity for us to discredit the credibility of Stephen. He doesn't even know his history. Everybody knows that there were 70 people that went down to Egypt during their period of bondage. Not 75. Exodus makes that very clear in chapter 1. What's he talking about? There were 75 and not 70. Now, we don't have time to do this. I wish I did, but I'm bringing it to your attention to tell you that if they had any reason to attack Stephen any further on his credibility, they'd have done it at this point. The tragedy is that a lot of people today will say, oh, there's the Bible. It's not reliable. Exodus chapter 1 says 70 people went down to Egypt, and here is Stephen saying 75. He doesn't know what he's talking. That's why I brought these two books with me today. Probably wondered why they were here. You thought I was going to read them from cover to cover for you today, right? No. This one is my Hebrew Bible. It's written all in Hebrew. This is the Bible that the Aramaic-speaking Jews read in their synagogues in Jerusalem. The Hebrew-speaking Jews read this one. And it is true. 
In the book of Exodus chapter 1, the Bible tells us that there were 70 people. This is the Septuagint. This is my Greek Old Testament. This Bible was translated into the Greek language from the Hebrew language between the Old and the New Testament. You talk about that 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew in the Old Testament, and you always ask yourself the question, I wonder what was happening during those years. Well, one of the big things that was happening during those years is the Old Testament scriptures were being translated into Greek because the Greeks owned the world, and the Romans took over the Greek culture, and the Romans owned the world, and everybody in the world spoke Greek. And so Jews that were, uh, that were uh, in all of the countries of the Roman Empire were in their synagogues reading and speaking Greek. This is the very Bible that Jesus quoted, the Old Testament that Jesus quoted more than any other version. If you go to Exodus chapter 1, it doesn't say 70. The translators say 75 because they added several other relatives, grandkids, to the mix. But you see, Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew, so he was quoting history from the Septuagint. I bring that to your attention because you and I don't know this stuff. And a lot of people who want to destroy the credibility of Scripture will try to do it by looking at inconsistencies. And one of the problems with inconsistencies, and I'm taking, my advantage, I'm taking this advantage to say this to you, you know that one of the reasons why complaints and disputes and problems develop in the first place is because we won't accept the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We accept a little bit of the truth, and we hide the rest of it so that we can get people to believe what we want them to believe. Right? That's what we do. That's what we do. And by the way, and I don't have time to do this, Harold had a wonderful Sunday school lesson on it last week. But we can do the very same thing in verse 15 with the tomb where Jacob was buried later on. But we can't do that this morning. But I'm merely going to say to you that if you knew all of the history behind this, you would never read Acts chapter 7 and 8 and say, oh, Stephen doesn't know what he's talking about. He is, he is contradicting himself. Now, I want to I I close with a, a thought here for you. I want to close with this thought. When they stoned Stephen, it says that Saul was standing there. And Saul, in chapter 8, verse 1, was consenting to Stephen's death. He was all for it. And I believe it's very possible that the apostle Paul was a part of the synagogue of the freemen, where the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and the Cilicians and the Asians, where he was from, attended. He's a mad guy. He's an upset. He's really upset. And he hated Stephen. Doesn't hate Stephen now, does he? He and Stephen are having a good time now, you see. 
Because the Apostle Paul had an experience on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. Just two chapters later where he gets saved and comes to know the Lord as Savior. But here's my final thought for you. And I will close with this in a quick illustration here. When Stephen, uh, when Stephen talks to the, to, the, the, to the Jewish people in his defense, to the religious leaders in his defense, he says, what amazes me, and you can read between the lines, he says, well, what amazes me about you guys is that God gave you the oracles of life. He gave you the living oracles to give to the world. And this is the way you're treating the word of God. He did that back. At the old, he said, you guys, what do you want instead? You wanted a golden calf instead. And then he says to them in his, in his, in his other thing, he says in verse 53, uh, you've received the law which was given by God had angels involved in that whole production of the law. And all you did is just kill every prophet that came along and wanted to share it. But here's my final application for you, okay? There was once a king who lived in a beautiful palace near a little village. He loved the people in the village and tried in many ways to help them. But the people were selfish and did not try to help one another. The good king wished to teach them a lesson, so he arose early one morning and placed a large stone in the road which led past his palace. Then hiding himself nearby, he watched to see what would happen. Soon a woman came along driving some goats to pasture. She grumbled because the stone was in the way and stepped over it and went on the way down the, up the road. By and by a man came riding a donkey. He complained about the stone but drove around it and went on his way. Other people came and went. Each remarked about the stone but no one tried to move it. At last when the day was almost ended, the miller's boy came down the road Seeing the stone, he halted and put down the bundle that he was carrying and said this. This stone should not be here, he said. Someone might fall over it. I will move it out of the way. The stone was heavy and the boy could scarcely lift it. But by repeated efforts, he at last pushed it from its place and rolled it to one side. As he turned to continue on his way, he saw something where the stone had been. There was a bag with writing on it. Bending closer, he read these words, This bag of gold belongs to the one who helps others by removing the stone from the road. Just take a look, as a, as a member of the church, identifying yourself as a member of the church, as a part of the disciples who were growing in that early church, it was happening because you were treating the, the, the word of the Lord with a great deal of respect. And you were treasuring it above. Above, believe it or not. Above the ones that Stephen addressed. And I want to tell you, we live in a day and age when we need to treasure this book more than ever before. We live in a day and an age when we need to understand this book better than we've ever understood it before. We live in a day and an age when we need to share this book more than we've ever shared it before. And in order to do that, instead of tripping over the stone in the road, look at the treasure that God has given us. And gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word.
And Lord, when we look at Stephen's life, we pray in your precious name that you would make it possible for us to be so enamored by your word and so in love with you and your word and that we're always consulting it for the answers that you have for all of the questions we could possibly raise in this life in which we live. Father, it's a treasure beyond comparison, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.